Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Mike Kresnick, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hummelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we get to sit down and talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're asking the question, does God change his mind? Well, does he? We're going to get into some Bible geek questions. Uh, we're going to we're just going to hang out in the scriptures uh, for a couple podcasts here. We've done a lot of stuff recently on culture and spent a lot of time talking about current events. And uh, we decided, you know what, we, we just want to spend a few podcasts just sort of going deep into the scriptures. Um, I've been preaching the book of Jonah, and this question arises in the book of Jonah because in Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And some of the more uh, loose translations say, even they translate this as God changed his mind about the disaster that he was going to do. And so this is an important question for us to ask, because it certainly does seem that the text of Jonah suggests that God was going to do one thing, and then in response to how the people of Nineveh responded, he chose to do another thing. Uh, So that certainly raises the question, does God change his mind? Uh, Chris, about 15 years ago, open theism was kind of a hot topic. Uh, There Mm. were some theologians who said, actually, um, the future is open. Uh, We participate with God in the shaping of the future. God doesn't know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. And so they espouse a view called open theism. Uh, There was a a number of sort of academic-level books that were written about it. It became a a real uh, interesting debate for about five or ten years. Um, And they were essentially saying, yeah, we participate with God in the shaping of the future. Your thoughts? So let me ask you a question, though, Bob. Here's my thought. I hate when you answer my question. (laughs) I answer your question. question with a question. Or, or maybe I'll just tee it up this way. Why does it matter that if God changes his mind, like what's at stake in the open theism debate? Well, I think what's at stake is a couple things. Does Is God unchanging? Can, if, can we count on God to be the same yesterday, today, and forever? If he changes his mind, if he sort of adapts to the world as we experience it, uh, what does that suggest then about his character, his nature, his capacity for change? Yeah, well, and one of the things... Um, about open theism. I remember um, reading, I think it was Greg Boyd, was yep. he one of the, yep. the big, um, kind of wrote both at a popular level and, and some academic level stuff, uh, is it seemed to be also getting into the question of how do we understand evil in the world and yeah. God's relation to it? And if God is powerful and good, it's the age-old question, um, then why do we have so much evil in the world? And it seems that open theism wants to hold on to the goodness of God and sort of jettison right. uh, the, the control of God. Um, and, and so that, you know, it's a very simplistic way to put it, but, but those dynamics too of how can we have a good God that is also all-powerful and in control. Um, and so these, these things are at play too. And if God changes his mind, does that not open up some of the, you know, his interaction with, with evil? So, so those are the thoughts as I think of open theism that kind of come to mind. The problem with open theism is the Bible. I like to, I like to drop lines like that. The problem basically with false teaching. the problem with open theism is uh, the Bible says things like God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. And the Bible is very clear that God knows the past, the present, the future. That God is outside of time. That God is the creator of time. And so, as open the open theism was sort of one of those flash in the pan teachings that honestly no one even talks about anymore because it was so summarily answered, I think, by good orthodox theologians. And so. Um, but but it it did 
really play with this question, what about texts like Jonah 3, where it says God was going to do this, and then he changed his mind? So I thought we'd tackle that question, and, and I think the important thing, it's, it's actually, it was framed as a theological question by the open theists, but Chris, I think it's actually a textual question, because what it brings into, into the, the real bigger question is, how does prophecy work in Scripture? Um, because we see many times in the prophetic writings, the prophets are warning of things. They're appealing. They're saying, if you don't respond, God's going to, for instance, send you into exile, or God's going to take away the kingdom from you. And so it's clear that the prophets are seeking some kind of a response. And so to understand the nature of a text like Jonah 3, God relenting from something he said he was going to do, we have to more broadly understand the nature of prophecy. How does prophecy work? And to put it simply, prophecy works within the larger container or the larger context of covenant. Um, covenant is the overarching nature of God's relationship with his people. And covenant is, I mean, the simplest uh, way to understand it as we think about even a marriage covenant is, it's a relationship that involves both, both promise and threat, right? It's an exclusive relationship that involves promise, I'm pledging myself to you, and threat. If you're, if you're unfaithful to this covenant, there's curses, there's, um, there's consequences, and this is the nature of God's relationship with his people. We see him establishing his covenant with Abraham, for instance, in Genesis 15 and 17, and then with Moses at Mount Sinai. And so it's important to realize that the prophets are working within covenantal dynamics. And in the nature of covenant, because it involves both promise and threat, the prophets are doing both of those things. They're promising the people, hey, if you follow the Lord, if you walk with the Lord, if you obey the Lord, there'll be blessing for you. And if you don't, there will be cursing for you. There'll be, there'll be consequences for your disobedience. Um, and so when we understand that that's the context in which the prophets are working, um, it helps us make sense of God's interaction with um, human beings and how the prophets can say, how Jonah can go to Nineveh and say, hey, repent or God's going to destroy you. And then the people repent and God doesn't destroy them. Um, one of my professors in seminary, Richard Pratt, uh, was very helpful to me in thinking about this, and he wrote a paper called Historical Contingencies in Prophecy. And here's his essential point. The prophets always worked with implied contingencies. In other words, every prophecy of Scripture, every prophet who was proclaiming God's Word in the Old Testament was working within the framework of contingencies. They were realizing um, what God plans to do or says he's going to do um, is open to contingency because of the nature of covenant, because of the nature of God's interaction with his people. And so here's how Pratt frames it. Under the sovereign control of God, which is an important phrase. So he would say, look, we believe in the immutability, the sovereignty of God. Under the sovereignty of God, the choices people make determine the direction history will take. So, so he, he very much says we don't want to so emphasize God's transcendence and God's immutability that we remove the reality that within God's sovereignty, he interacts with us using our decisions and our choices and our prayers and our responsibility um, affect outcomes underneath the sovereignty of God. And he really appeals to John Calvin here. Uh, Calvin said it this way, God works through an intermediary sometimes without an intermediary, sometimes contrary to every intermediary. So, so Calvin is saying, look, God's free to just do whatever he wants, but usually he works through people. He works through means. He works through our obedience. He works through our, um, our prayers and our service to him. 
And the Westminster Confession is clear about this. All the sort of classic theological creeds and confessions acknowledge the reality that um, God interacts with us providentially. And so when we see that, we begin to see that the prophets are always working with implied conditions. So let me read you another quote from Pratt's essay. When prophets spoke about things to come, they did not necessarily refer to what the future would be. At times, they proclaimed only what might be. Prophets were attempting to create certain responses in the community by making their predictions explicitly conditional. They spoke of potential, not necessary events. Thus, their predictions warned of judgment and offered blessings in order to motivate listeners to participate in determining their own future. So back to Jonah 3. That's what Jonah's doing, right? He's going to Nineveh. He's saying 40 days and the city will be overthrown. And he's doing that. The reason God's sending him to Nineveh is because God wants to offer the Ninevites an opportunity to respond to that. And the implication is if they respond, there's a different future possible for them. And of course, the king of Nineveh basically says, hey, who knows? Maybe God, you know, maybe God will be gracious to us. Maybe by repenting, we can stay this sentence of doom that has come upon us. And so it's important for us to recognize as readers of the Bible, this, this contingent nature of prophecy, because it helps us understand how is it that God can say, I'm going to destroy you, and then, and then oh, actually I'm not, because you repented. Um, how, do we, how does that allow us to hold both God's immutability and God's transcendence and God's unchangingness and also acknowledge but, but God does interact with human obedience and disobedience in a dynamic way, in a providential way. And you see this happen multiple places in Scripture. So here you have Jonah, you have in Deuteronomy 9 with Moses and the people of Israel. You think of um, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and so you have these these moments where, where the Lord does begin kind of down the road of, hey, I'm going to bring judgment, and then because of the people's repentance, change it changes his mind. But but as you've been pointing out, Bob, there's a couple couple things that are important to that. One, um, changing your mind. Um, well, sometimes that can be implied that somehow God changes, and and what we see is that God is not in Himself, in His character, in His being, changing because He is operating within the context of covenant and within his the, the the nature of his own character. And so I think that's an important piece is God changing his mind does not mean that he has somehow changed in his being or that he's somehow he was going to act within character one way and then decided, oh wait, I'm going to act differently and so now God is different in that sense. And the the class a classic example that's helpful here is parenting. Right, Mike, like you you respond to your kids with promise and threat. Hey, kids, if you're good, we'll do this. If you're not good, here will be the consequence. And you do that not because you're planning to, to you know, shift in your character toward them. You do that because you're, offer, you're setting out before them two paths. And you're saying, hey, I want you to walk on the path of obedience and blessing. But at the same time, you need to acknowledge that there's another route you could take. And that will come with consequences. And we just call that the nature of parenting because we're teaching our children to conform their will to the kinds of things that we want them to do. And we want them to understand their life involves blessing and curses. There's, there's a certain way you can walk in that brings about blessing. And there's a certain way you can walk in that brings about destruction. Another thought that um, as, as I've dialogued with people about this and thought through this, this issue, um, someone once asked me, well, why doesn't it just 
spell out exactly what happened. Why why this kind of contingency? Why did why wasn't it? You know, why, why don't we kind of get this glimpse of the whole thing um, so that it doesn't appear that God didn't know it was going to happen? Um, why, why why can't we just get a clearer picture, so to speak? And when when I was dialoguing with this person, um, one of the important questions that they kind of we were going back and forth on is is it, does God just sort of abstractly engage with people in sort of this puppeteering, controlling type way, or is he actually engaging people in history, in their lives, through real events and and all of the the dynamic aspects of life? And I think that's what scripture holds out God, a God who actually engages people at the level of real decisions, real events, real history, through all the the messiness and the twists and turns of life. And so what we're getting is a narration of a God who actually engages us where we are. And so we're not getting abstract theology. We're getting like God actually interacting with people. And so it, it, it we also have to recognize like how is scripture laying out God's interaction with people? And so, yeah, if we want to kind of pull this up in the level of philosophy and highbrow theology of, you know, God set up these contingencies and he really knew it was going to happen, but it didn't communicate that way. It's like, okay, now we're just getting philosophical and theological in an unhelpful way. So, so I, when, when we have these conversations, it's just helpful. Hey, let's just take a step back and recognize how God actually interacts with people and celebrate that for a second. Well, and how God has, he's actually said in scripture, this is how I'm going to relate. Mike, I'm going to ask you if you'll read Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10, which I think is in the Old Testament, God's clearest way of stating that he intends to interact with us in this way. It's this sort of, he gives Jeremiah sort of this um, visual picture and then interprets the picture for him. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Okay, so there's God explicitly saying, here's here's the dynamics by which I'm going to interact with people. If I say this and people respond in the way I would like them to, then I'll change my mind, so to speak, uh, relent of the disaster that I said. On the other hand, if I decree something good and they don't they don't walk in obedience, uh, then I won't bring that good to pass. So here's the importance of Jeremiah 18. Uh, I think that text suggests that all prophecy is subject to implicit conditions. Basically, what God is saying is, look, if I decree something about a nation or a kingdom, and then they respond in a way that's pleasing to me, I'm I'm free to bring about a different set of circumstances, which is exactly what we see in Jonah chapter three. And and what that suggests then is we should read all prophecy 
with that dynamic, understanding that it's subject to these sorts of contingencies, that it operates within this, that prophecy itself is a, a warning to, to people, and that if we heed that warning and respond, we can expect blessing and grace from God. And likewise, that um, prophecies of good, if we do not walk in obedience, um, cannot come to pass. And so when we understand prophecy as contingent in this way, within the boundaries of covenant. Okay, so Pratt, one of the things he does in his paper is he says, okay, well, so if this is true, then how come we believe that God would follow through on anything? Like, doesn't this just make it sort of everything's open to interpretation? And he says, no, the the grounding that we have here are the promises of covenant. So, mm-hmm. for instance, thinking through the Old Testament, God's people knew that he was going to be faithful to his covenant. They could count on the fact that he's going to fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as we read the Old Testament, we do see this very interactive dynamic where based on obedience and disobedience, the kingdom either sort of grows and flourishes or it seems to shrink and diminish. I mean, this is the, all the books of First and Second Kings, right? Or like, this king obeyed the Lord and walked with him, therefore the Lord brought blessing. This king disobeyed the Lord and walked in unfaithfulness and committed idolatry, and therefore the Lord brought judgment on his house. And this helps us understand the nature of why we have this sort of ebb and flow in the Old Testament. Why do we have some seasons where it seems like God's people are really flourishing and thriving? And why do we have some seasons where it feels like things are sort of contracting and shrinking? Um, And so I think that can help us even in understanding the, the sort of drama of the Old Testament story and how it sort of seems to go back and forth and God God threatening his people with exile and then them responding and I'm saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna not send you into exile yet, but then them turning back to disobedience and the exile actually coming. And um, even as we see in the book of Daniel, there's this fascinating passage where Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah and realizing that God had decreed through Jeremiah seventy years of exile for his people. And so Daniel's praying to God and saying, Hey the seventy years are almost up. Can we can we count on you to take us back? What, you know, how do we respond to this? And God sends a messenger to Daniel that says, "Actually, I'm multiplying it by seven. So you're gonna it's gonna be 490 years." Hmm. Um, and, and so we see Daniel interacting with God on the basis of covenant, saying, "God, you said you were gonna restore us, but I also acknowledge that you said 70 years, and it seems like we've been here 70 years. What what what's next? What are you going to do?" And so he seems to both be counting on God's promise and also living in the reality that I don't I don't know that we've repented the way that you expected us to. I don't know that we've walked with you in the ways that Jeremiah said. And so what does that mean for us and for your people? Something one of my old testament professors said in in thinking through to kind of help this these categories, uh, think of the prophets less as a fortune teller and more as a covenant prosecutor. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if we think of the prophets as, hey, all they're doing is speaking about what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen, we're making predictions, predictions, predictions. That's not the role. The prophets actually came in and sort of prosecuted the people, calling them back to the Lord, say, hey, here's the covenant God made with us. If we repent, he's going to save and there's going to be a uh, redemption here. But if we persist in our sin, this is what's going to happen. And so so, so we, we even have to sort of shift our view of what the prophetic role was in the Old Testament. Otherwise, we may get a little skewed on on how we understand the things that they're saying. That's been really helpful to me, that distinction between foretelling the future and sort of being a prosecutor of mm-hmm. a, you know, in a legal sense. Uh, now, here's where Pratt goes with this that's going to tweak some listeners. He says, if that's the dynamic by which prophecy works, that's also the dynamic by which prophecy works in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. 
And so when we we're coming out of this era of everybody being fascinated about end times and when's everything going to happen and when's the antichrist get installed and when does the temple get rebuilt and all this stuff. And Pratt just says people who treat the prophecies about the future that way are not being faithful to what prophecy is. Uh, He has this great line. We should be less concerned with foreknowledge of the future and more concerned with the formation of the future. And so he really wants to pull, he wants to use this idea of contingency and prophecy to pull us into a sense of responsibility and saying, look, how the people of God act in the here and now, in the right now, actually affects God's plans for the world in some meaningful way. How do we know that? Because we have the Old Testament. So that should lead us then, instead of speculating about like what's going on in the Middle East and how does North Korea fit in and all that, what we should be asking is, what is the book, what are books like Revelation? Um mean for us? How should the church be responding in repentance, hope, faith, obedience, um, mission? That, that therefore, um, we're walking in ways that would seek to bring about the purposes that God has decreed for the world, rather than just sitting back and sort of waiting for the curtain to fall and the next act to begin, which I think is really fascinating because it just, when, when, when uh, Dr. Pratt first sort of unpacked this in a class, it sort of, I just was like, I've, I've never even thought about that before. Like that changes how I think about prophecies about the future, prophecies that are still to come. Here's a quote from the last piece of Pratt's essay. The fatalism of popular approaches to prophecy should be replaced by piety and activism, intent on avoiding judgment and securing blessing. If we believe that human responses to biblical predictions affect the ways in which the future unfolds, We should make certain certain that our responses direct the future toward divine blessing. Turning away from sin, offering prayers, and working for the kingdom must become our central hermeneutical concern. Um, So what's rich about this approach to me is it avoids the error of open theism, which says, well, God doesn't know the future, and so who knows what's going to happen. But it also avoids this sort of um, frozen, um, deterministic, view of God's sovereignty that says, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, and I guess, you know, we have no part in that. It, it, it helps us see that underneath the sovereignty of God, human responsibility is meaningful and, and brings about certain realities in the world that God uses means to bring about his divine ends is really what we're saying. And so it makes me, every time I think about this stuff, it makes me challenged about, okay, how, how should my prayer life be affected by this? Like if if prayer is one of God's means of bringing about the future that he wants, then this means my lack of prayer actually matters, uh, and my faithfulness in prayer actually matters. Uh, same thing for things like church planting and mission, right? If if the flourishing of the church depends in some part on our faithfulness to be obedient to the call that God's given to go into all the world and preach the gospel, well, th- that's a meaningful invitation for us rather than just sort of sitting back and going, well, I mean, if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. It just means that our best ingenuity, our best service, our best um, giving of ourselves for the kingdom's purposes um, is a meaningful way of responding to um, the scriptures and of responding to the the work of God in the world. And this, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Um, this is God's invitation and God's way of, of entering into to history, into our real world and interacting with us in a real way. And so, um, you know, in, in some, to some degree, kind of thinking at this at a high level, a high level theology and kind of wrestling through some of the, the aspects of, you know, God's 
uh, sovereignty and his providence and his omniscience and foreknowledge, like that, that can be beneficial to some degree. But if if we get so wrapped up in that and miss the the on the ground nature of how God interacts with us, then then we miss the point. Like that God has actually called us into something meaningful, and that He is interacting with us in a real way, and our choices have real consequences. Our pray- prayers actually matter. Then that's that's just rich. That's there's blessing in that, and that's what we should be running after more so than trying to like peer behind the curtain and how does all this work together? It's like, God just said, go, repent, preach the gospel, you know, serve, bless people, you know, live righteously. Like that's where our, our energy needs to be. So I think that's, that's a wonderful word in the midst of, you know, discussing contingencies and prophecy. So does God change his mind? The answer is no. But does he interact with human decisions and choices in a way that's full of meaning within his sovereign purposes? Yes, absolutely. And so what we see in Jonah chapter 3 is he sends Jonah to preach to the Ninevites with the hope of bringing about the exact thing we see, a massive repentance and turning back to God. Um, And the reason we know that this is how we should just, this is what we should expect of God. When he, when, when God warns us, um, we should expect that he's warning, his warnings have teeth to them. Like we, we really are in danger of missing out on the blessing of God, experiencing, um, the contraction of the mission of God. If we're not faithful and obedient, um, how do we know this is how God works? Because Jonah in chapter four says, God, I knew you would do this. I knew you were a God who was slow to anger and relenting concern. You know, he basically says, yeah, yeah, this is why I didn't want to go preach in the first place because I knew you were going to treat the Ninevites with grace. Um, and Jonah's, Jonah's uh, response of saying, I knew this about you, God, is our, is our clue that this is not some random event in the history of the world. This is the nature of how God interacts with his people. And thus we can have confidence that as we live in this day and age, um, we need to live in the same way that, that um, expects God to show up and work in our circumstances and expects that in some way, our responsibility, our engagement and obedience um, has a role to play in what we experience of God and what we expect of God. Well, that's going to end this week's conversation. Bob, what are we talking about next week? We're going to talk about typology, which is another interesting category that we find in Jonah. Great. Well, the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that the things that we've talked about might also be helpful to you as you minister in your own context. And we hope that you join us next Wednesday for another Wednesday conversation.